you're tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. We begin this new year with a fresh look at where we want to go and the future we hope for our children and grandchildren. We recently sat down with Patrick Sullivan, CEO of Oceanit, and Paul Brubaker of TZ Economics. The duo recently uh, released a paper challenging lawmakers and all of us to look at another point of view. It's about investing in our young minds, our talent, our human capital, or risk losing our future. We've just come out of, a, of the pandemic and economic upheaval, and most recently a natural disaster that we weren't prepared for. They suggest it has left us with an opportunity to, as Sullivan framed it, reclaim a point of view offered by King Kalakaua. It's the idea that Hawaii is the center of our universe, as we have this kuleana, this responsibility for this special place we call home. There's so many special things about Hawaii, but the the people that we meet going, you know, uh, with university and some of these interns, it's kind of a sad, persistent problem that we see. There's good people, there's good talent, but we don't seem to be doing much about it as a, as a state. It's as though we have no control over it. And then when you look at the opportunity space Hawaii has, I think it's enormous. I mean, we write, for example, today we don't welcome astronomers, but yet astronomy is an incredible industry. But the idea that the university is just going to build 10,000 jobs, that was never an idea that, was, that made any sense. But yet the, the state can create policies to support that, but the state doesn't do that. You can make the same argument with Hawaii's preeminence in um, agricultural technology and ag genetic research where we can lead the world in these ideas, but we're not building the or creating the policies to support the infrastructure to build the industries that would benefit from that and create jobs and sort of spin up an industry. It's as though we we think there's some kind of magic wand that's got to be waved. But when you look around other parts of the U.S. and the world, you'll see there's maybe a beginning of, of an idea of somebody with scientific know-how or, you know, back to the astronomy thing, but you build things around it to support it from information systems, optics, control systems, robotics. There's all of these things that can come with it. You can support that with policy. But the key ingredient to all of the above is right people that are highly educated. And so everything points to human capital as the missing ingredient. We see this firsthand as we're trying to find talent and the university doesn't produce enough. And it doesn't seem as though, it's almost like people do research in spite of the fact that they're not welcome at the university, when in fact, we should be welcoming and supporting that. And we should be creating opportunities to build on that with the right policies. And I think after decades of the wrong policies or misguided policies, we've kind of painted ourselves in a corner. And I think we need to do something to to get out of it. And I think the answer is, is here. We keep looking outside as though somebody's going to save us. But I think as a community, we have to decide to save ourselves. And that means to look in the mirror, to kind of look at the talent we have, and to try to understand how to build the right policies to create the ecosystem where these, these emergent enterprises could thrive. And what's really exciting is the technology is moving faster than ever before. It's not like picking a subject or an area as much as empowering and educating people. So in the past where we would say, let's pick a cluster, we have beaches, let's focus on building an industry around sand. Well, that sounds absurd, but we kind of do that and it never seems to quite work. But if we build talent and then create the infrastructure to enable that talent to bring their ideas and innovation to the rest of the planet. Now you're building an industry based on ideas. And when you look at that economic growth compared to what we do now, so what we do now is we rely on cheap labor. So why is it, why are we surprised that people can't afford to live here? It's all about cheap labor. And housing is somebody else's problem. I think if we, if we focus on quality people, they can have much higher paying jobs and they can then choose to do all kinds of things here and they can be connected to the planet. So whereas we used to be isolated 50 years ago, we're really not anymore. With broadband and electricity and transportation, you can live anywhere in the world. And Hawaii can have an important place to impact the rest of the planet. There's lots of need out there. So 
my thought was, after, as I say in the paper, a decade of working with the schools, realizing that the schools, nothing's changing with these kids. They still come and they say there's nothing for us. They're all bred like that. They trained like that. That's the wrong idea. They should be demanding to learn the right skills so that they can create competitive careers to make a difference around the world, from Hawaii to the world. And Paul, jump in here. Do you feel the sense of urgency now? I mean, given that we've just come off this disaster with the wildfires and we're on the verge of an economic disaster with tourism over there, you know, with housing and with fears that people are going to be driven away and and that we've got to do something and chart our own course out of this. Patrick and I have been thinking about these things even before the wildfire. It's an important event for the just-ended year and frames a lot of what the governments are Maui County and the state will have to focus on as we enter the new year. But the concern is really motivated by a confluence of other things that came together in the course of the last decade and as we entered this one, beginning with the state's policy to dismantle telescopes rather than to build them, the state's policy to decrease the total number of visitors on Oahu. That's the actual objective of the Tourism Authority. And if you're not going to do the things we already know we can do and do more of, then you're really backed into this corner. As Patrick says, you you know, we're not going to exploit the natural resource endowment to grow tourism by another 5 million tourists a year. We're not evidently going to do a number of science-based industry activities that had been going on for a half century in astronomy and in maize genomics, which, by the way, was the largest agricultural activity in the state a decade ago and one quarter of all agriculture in the state one decade ago. So we're really left with the human capital endowment, the workforce that we have, the kids that are coming up through the system, a system which tends to encourage up-and-coming kids not to contemplate a future in Hawaii. If it's not explicit, it's at least implicit in sort of the modern culture. So we really need to push against that quite a bit. The returns on investment in human capital take a long time to manifest for society. They're pretty secure for the individual, but where that individual is going to end up is a whole other question. I don't begrudge anybody who leaves Hawaii. I did. And then if you get a chance to come back, all the better. But the thing that's really changed post-pandemic is the recognition that you can be anywhere now. We, it turns out we could have before the pandemic, but your boss wasn't going to let you. And now you can clearly see a quarter of the workforce in Hawaii today works remotely, either full-time or, or a hybrid or several days a week. And so that, you know, nobody's going back to the way it was pre-pandemic. And it, it sort of opens up the geographic, removes the geographic boundaries, really, and allows us to think anew about an older problem, but one which, you know, potentially gives young people an opportunity to engage in economic activity that is more spatially or geographically dispersed in its origin. So Hawaii has a place, just like any other place on the planet in that context. It's sort of a combination of all these things. And then back to the first thing that uh, Patrick uh, reminded us is you know, we see what my colleagues at UHERO like to talk about in terms of clusters or networks or nodes, you know, these aggregations of interrelated economic activities or, or, you know, even more formally industries that can emerge organically, so to speak. We don't require a lot of central sort of guidance. We don't need, a you know, an all-seeing planner, but we do need the underlying foundation, which, is the, which are the skills. And as they say, now with the technology we have, you're not limited to having to work only with firms that are in Hawaii. Or for that matter, firms in Hawaii aren't limited to having only to deal with consumers that are in Hawaii. So there's a number of different things that have come together this decade. It sounds like the two of you are challenging our leaders to think differently, to do something now. The government doesn't have to do that much that we all can't ourselves do, like if we're just allowed to do it. But the government is the best place for us as a society in Hawaii to cultivate the skills that are necessary to be a participant in the kind of economy we envision. And that starts with, you know, early childhood foundation building. It Obviously, the public education system could use a lot of work. And then we're, we're really keen on higher education in Hawaii and 
I'm a product of it. We've all worked around it. Patrick draws upon it with regularity. So if we can invest in those areas, I think maybe we don't have to spend as much time going to the Mystic Mountain Nika Cave to see what the wizards say is the next industry of the future. That'll emerge on its own. And Patrick? The key is quality people with great education. And Hawaii produces quality people just the way a lot of these kids grow up here. They're good people, but they need to be endowed and empowered with a, with a great education because we compete internationally. But we're not bounded by geography. We're essentially unbounded. I mean, we, we live in this space all the time, so that's why I find it so hard to believe that others don't see that, too. Before COVID, hardly anybody knew about Zoom. Now, I don't think anybody would question that you can use these different tools to have meetings. It still requires some human interaction, and, and that can be managed in a whole bunch of different ways. But the rest of the planet is a market. And so we live in that space with the different things that we do. We see it every day. And so we are perplexed why others in the state are not seeing it. But more importantly, they're not supporting the things that would allow it to thrive. That was Patrick Sullivan, CEO of Oceanet, a Hawaii company that encourages innovation and aims to grow local talent. He teamed up with Paul Brubaker of TZ Economics to write a paper urging policymakers to act now to diversify our economy and walk the talk. Brubaker has long warned that Hawaii has seen its uh, GDP, gross domestic product, slip in the last 30 years. Sullivan believes now is the time to leverage the disruption caused by the pandemic. We'll hear more after a short break. With the Iowa caucuses just a week away, the presidential nominating season is about to begin. But with former President Donald Trump holding commanding leads, is the race already over? Trump is a very strong favorite, but he's not inevitable. I'm Anthony Brooks, the narrow path to victory for Nikki Haley or some other Republican not named Trump. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the Daily. Support for HPR comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, celebrating 75 years of preparing Hawaii's future business leaders for global opportunities. Scheidler.hawaii.edu Don't just settle for chocolate-covered mac nuts. That's one takeaway from a position paper written by economist Paul Brubaker and Honolulu businessman Patrick Sullivan. Sullivan is CEO of Oceanit, a local company that uses a cross-disciplinary approach to problems. Let's get back to our conversation. Now, we're doing things, for example, at Oceanit, but it's a massive opportunity space. There's so much opportunity for all kinds of companies, not just ours. But the key ingredient is people. And we seem to not take that very seriously. And that's why I thought this was important because the University of Hawaii needs to be the engine of high quality people and they need to really embrace and build a research capability that goes out and does things that sound credible, impossible, disruptive. We need to be educating people to get comfortable with that and to build things around that. We do this kind of thing all the time, but just so much to do. So pick a field. You know, we talk about agriculture here, but we really don't do a whole lot in ag tech. We talk about energy, but mostly we just want to import windmills and panels and call it a day. We should be creating energy technology and exporting it to the planet. We should create it here. And then when you go to scale, it's a massive scale. The rest of the world needs massive amounts of energy. The market is, is huge. Healthcare you know, healthcare is an interesting thing because we can do a lot of that work here. The manufacturing of molecules, they're smaller than coffee beans, but somehow we can't get our heads around why that's okay or a good idea. There's no interest in that kind of thing 
but yet you could create a whole ton of jobs there in the manufacturing space, in the research space. You've got marketing and distribution, regulatory. You've got quality systems. And the interesting thing is, during COVID, we were really trying to push. We spent six months trying to set up manufacturing here. We could get very almost no interest here locally. And I got a call from an interesting guy who's the founder of Hexel Wetsuits. And they started building the wetsuits out of the North Shore. And it was around the time, I think, the Kahuku Plantation shut down. And he called him, he said, you know, people told him back then that we didn't have the talent. And he said, that's totally wrong. He said, we took a bunch of those folks that worked in sugar and we trained them to help us build our wetsuits and our wetsuit brand to build an industry around that. He said, we trained them. Those are manufacturing jobs in that particular situation. It's around an ocean sport. But when it comes to manufacturing, quality systems, and dealing with all the logistics for healthcare technology and, you know, therapies and other kinds of things, there's no reason why you can't do that physically here. So we need to look at creating these technologies in Hawaii you build jobs with that. It's going to take time. It took decades to get here. It's going to take time to change things. But the rest of the market has a, a need for these things. And Hawaii can produce the talent, the innovation, and deliver at scale these kinds of technologies. And so we see that, but yet there doesn't seem to be a lot of interest. And I think it's reflected in policies, but I think at the end of the day, it's a lack of confidence in this community the lack of confidence in the people that live here. And so we spend all of our time focusing on making Hawaii a great place to visit. And it is an incredible place to visit. And the tourist industry has been a fantastic industry for all kinds of people and for all kinds of reasons. But we can do much more than that. And I think that's the problem is we tend to stop there and say, well, there's nothing else to do. And you can see how brittle things are. Like on Maui, something happens and it breaks down and all of a sudden there's a catastrophe. We need to be more resilient. That means we need a more robust business ecosystem to support and engage a host of things. You don't have to look very far to see how the world is exploding with ideas and technology. And Hawaii can absolutely have a a role in that, and it'll create good jobs, and it'll be a good part of the economy. But it doesn't just happen overnight, and it does need the right policies. It sounds like we've got to get over this inferiority complex. But, Paul, I go back to the sense of urgency because, you know, you've been talking for years about how our gross domestic product has just declined. And it just seems like, you know, can well, we... Well, it's, it's, it's declined in per capita terms relative to the national average. So if the, if the measuring stick is the national norm... And we have gone from a post-war, mid-20th century interval of 30 or 40 years where Hawaii per capita personal income or Hawaii per capita GDP ran about 30% higher than the national average, which notably in those days, as well as would be true today, is actually higher than the living cost differential. But since the 1990s, Hawaii per capita income and output measures have fallen to about par with the national average and post pandemic, they've slipped below the national average now for, you know, an extended period. So we're moving in the wrong direction. We haven't been able to leverage some of these new opportunities. I keep thinking of all the kids that know how to produce content in social media and will be ahead of me on generative AI and and the newer, you know, opportunities that are latent in a technology that, as it emerges right now in the 2020s, to me is a, a real deja vu moment for uh, the emergence of the Internet in the 1990s. So I, I think we're on the threshold of one of those moments. And we didn't really capitalize on that in Hawaii. And that may not have been, you know, something that offered the same kind of opportunity. But as Patrick and I have both observed the, the breakdown in the barriers that geography previously imposed because of the nature of technologies enable collaboration over distance, I think is a really meaningful shift in global economic structure that when you add to the other potential opportunities that Hawaii has to offer, could make the difference. So, you know, we'll see. Patrick, any final thoughts? 
Yeah, I think it may sound silly, but one of the things we need to consider is trying to change our perspective. That, in fact, the glass is half full instead of half empty. That sounds silly, but I I refer to this interesting graphic from uh, King Kalakaua in the 1800s, putting Hawaii at the center of things. It was an idea, and that changed the way people communicated and thought of themselves and did things. And from Hawaii to the world, it's not just chocolate-covered magnets. We should be doing way more than that. And the opportunities are there. And the talent could be here if we would make that an important goal. So I think the opportunities there and the whole point of doing this paper was to bring attention to the issue and and give people something to think about because... When you look at this declining GDP as a function of you know how it compares to the U.S. mainland, of course they're going to get paid better if they move away, and the cost of living is going to be left. It's a kind of a double whammy where we do have a high cost of living, but almost any major center in the world has a high cost of living. But the way you got to deal with that, of course, is with good jobs, and to do that, you need to kind of rethink and lean into innovation. So to really grow things, I think it's two key elements, education and imagination. And that's what we can do here. And I think if people get that idea, maybe maybe we can build a better future instead of losing it. And by losing it, I mean, you know, if we continue on this trend, it's a kind of a rhetoric question, but will we recognize ourselves? We came back in 50 years, would Hawaii at all look like Hawaii today? And there are some people that think the way the future is mostly rich people with people that take care of them and it's a real stratified community that's it and i don't like that idea personally i think that it would be terrible because it's really the people that make hawaii special and when we lose them we lose you know we we talk about uh, aloha and what it means but it's enshrined in these people and these kids that grew up here it lives with them too so I think it's worthwhile and important. A greater sense of urgency to change the course that we're on? Absolutely. I think the timing right now, the timing is so good for this because you have huge changes going on around the planet. I mean, just look at what's going on with federal legislation, the massive investments into climate, massive investments in infrastructure, massive investments into the Chips and Science Act. Those are setting up future activities Hawaii should be part of that. But then you add to that what's going on in space, what's going on in energy, what's going on in AI, what's going on. mRNA blew the lid off of ideas and vaccines and drug delivery. All that's going on right now. It's incredible. So the opportunity space is vast, but we've got to decide as a state that it's something we want to do. And I would argue that it's important enough that we should make that decision and start looking at the right policies to enable that to happen with greater speed and urgency. That was Patrick Sullivan and Paul Brubaker. They wrote a position paper challenging policymakers and all of us across this island state to consider a point of view that they believe could change Hawaii's future and the future for our children and grandchildren. Don't just settle for chocolate-covered mac nuts. Agree or disagree? For links to read their ideas, head to the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. Today we spotlight a mysterious bridge that lives over the Like Like Highway. The overpass was built in 1959 to provide access to a family property in Kalihi Valley. It was a result of a compromise uh, after a portion of that property was condemned for construction of the Like Like. The family was willing to depart with the land peacefully if the then territory of Hawaii would agree to build an entrance for them off the highway. 
When the city nixed the idea, the concrete overpass was built instead, which might have been a relief because the family had many known, well-known run-ins with the law. In the 1960s, the family patriarch shot and killed a private detective who trespassed on the property uh, in an attempt to get uh, footage of him. In the late 80s, uh, he also shot out the tires of an employee's car, which led to a family quarrel that led to someone burning down the family home. For today's Backyard Quiz, we want to know the name of the overpass that leads to the aforementioned family estate. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right wins a reusable HPR tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing parents and children experiencing homelessness with opportunities to secure housing, including Family Promise of Hawaii. NareetHawaii.com. On the next Fresh Air, Sex with a Brain Injury. That's a title that makes you want to hear more. We'll talk with the author, Annie Leontis. It's about how her concussions changed everything. It made sex difficult, led to migraines, dizziness, memory fog, anger, and nearly divorce from her wife. We'll also talk about concussion research. Join us. Fresh Air, beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. State Agriculture Department is asking for an additional $55 million in its budget. It uh, outlined a request before the Senate Ways and Means Committee yesterday. It's to fund efforts to grow local agriculture as a whole, both to diversify the economy and to make sure the state is food resilient. The state has seen a decline in the industry in recent years. Sharon Hurd has served as director of the department for the past year. She talked to HPR's Mark Ladau about the state of Hawaii's agriculture. During the first year, it was the two things, of course, that mark the first year is the, I'm calling it the post-COVID emergence from our cocoon, you know. We, we started to feel hope this year that festivals were happening again, trade shows were happening again, people were out and about. There was a sense of um, relief that maybe we're coming through this, you know, maybe it's over. And I think that showed in the way that people were shopping and... Um, Things were looking good, at least for agriculture. A lot of the farmers' markets were humming again, and we had the Maiden Way Festival. You know, it was really a time where people were coming out of this post—I'm going to say post-COVID glum. You know, then what happened in August really took us all back a, a lot of steps, and we're now realizing that not only did COVID teach us that we need to be more self-sufficient. We need to start growing our own food. With the Maui incident, we found we need to be really resilient. We not only have to have the food that we're growing now, but we have to have a stockpile. We have to have seeds. We have to have, I call it germplasm, you know, trees and uh, plantlets to, to start growing new. It's almost like not even a continuation or a re- restoring. It's almost like a rebirth. You know, you have to start from scratch. And this taught us how important agriculture is, how important it is to have farmers and ranchers that are willing to do the hard work. And that is, I think, the lessons of the first year, that we were coming back, we were coming out of the the glumness of the COVID shadows, and then when we got hit again, it really made the point. Agriculture is so important. And, you know, the governor realizes this in his budget that he posted. He allocated a million dollars to the DeBucks program, so that helps local 
SNAP recipients, you know, purchase healthy, fresh food, and he allowed for a $750,000 budget for Farm to Food Bank. So it allows the food bank to purchase local foods for the food bank. And, and the food bank has told us that their number one need is for produce. You know, people are very, very generous. They donate a lot of uh, value-added foods, uh, frozen foods. But they, what they really would like is fresh fruits and vegetables. This allocation of $750,000 in, in the governor's budget will allow them to do that. It's not enough, but, you know, based on what we need for Maui, it is, it is, uh, it's all we could do. It's, uh, it's, it's a lot considering the other needs. Are there other uh, efforts within the department that you wanted to note in particular over the last 12 months or so? The Act 90 lands was a big deal. You know, Dylan, our director, Don Chang, and myself, we uh, moved over, we moved about 100 parcels from uh, the DLNR leases over to Department of Agriculture. But just having the two boards approve it is a big deal. There's a lot of work ahead of that. We have to then move it over into a, what they call an executive order. Then once we move it through the executive order, then we establish new leases through the Department of Agriculture. And that might take a few months, um, but it's a big accomplishment. It is. The other program that, we, that we're proud of is that our market development branch, our ag resource management branch, um, animal industry. There, I'm going to forget somebody, and that's always bad when you when you start naming. But they're all working very hard to move agriculture forward from every level. For instance, the micro grants for food security. That is a homeowner level. That's the household is up, can apply for up to five thousand dollars to grow the food that they eat. It's to increase the quantity and quality of locally grown food in in the community. $5,000 has made a big difference to households. We gave out over 500 of those last year. Other things we're working on, um, the animal industry group is working on a new program for moving um, animals into and out of the state. Our plant industry in division is working with the Department of Transportation for an electronic um, egg form. So things like that are not so visible to the locals, you might say, because it's more of a traveler benefit, but it's certainly things we are proud of. Maybe while we're on that topic, are there any ongoing initiatives right now that you want to note or, or that are coming soon from the department? The next thing, which is the general needs for agriculture, this is more like resolutions for 2024. Um, and that is that the overarching initiative that we want to make happen in 2024 is for the farmers and the ranchers to become profitable. The pandemic and the fire really impacted profitability for agriculture. And if the farmers and ranchers don't make money, as Richard High used to say, um, they're not going to farm. They're going to give it up. When we go out to buy food, let's replace one import that you buy with a local fruit, vegetable, you know, buy local beef, local eggs, local seafood. Just scale up, you know, take one thing out of your basket and replace it with a local product. So the other way that you can help farmers and ranchers be profitable in 2024 is realize that every farm and every ranch has an invasive pest. Every one of them is dealing with some invasive species, whether it's a plant or an insect. They spend time every day suppressing and treating these, um, these invasives. So we're asking for community awareness, for supporting their efforts to fight the invasives. There's something called that our pesticides department, our plant industry pesticides branch, they go out and they teach, they educate. It's called integrated pest management. It's as simple as taking off your slipper and smashing a roach. That's integrated pest management. That's how you are dealing with roaches. But there's other ways the community can help. Like, oh, I think I see, you know, this, I've never seen this kind of ant before. You know, you know that peanut butter stick thing. Um, if you see a, an insect flying around, catch it, put it in a Ziploc bag, freeze it, send it to us. 
we we want to know what's out there. You know, where is it? And we know that we are challenged to keep up with the invasives. We don't have the staff. Um, we we want to increase the number of staff we have. We have to increase the number of staff we have. Um, the estimated increase in cargo, anecdotally, anecdotally is the amount of cargo entering the state has quadrupled. The number of inspectors that we have has actually decreased. So, and, and I say that, I've said this before. How many Amazon packages did you receive this week? You know, think of how that has increased from last year to this year, and will probably continue to increase in 2024. If everyone can help, and if we can suppress it to the point where it's under control, Hawaii farmers and ranchers can focus on producing food. They don't have to take time out of their day, which they do every day, you know, time and money, to fight the invasive that's on their, their property. Then they can produce food for 12 months out of the year, which is something that no other state in the union can do. Our farmers can work 12 months, 24-7 if they wanted. They work in the sun, in the rain, in the dark. If the communities would help all of us fight LFA, fight coconut rhinoceros beetle. And the third one is, you know, the Department of Agriculture has had an amnesty program for quite some time. The amnesty program is if you have an illegal pet, um, most notably, you know, people talk about iguanas and snakes, do not release it into the wild. If you have a, a plant in your aquarium that you know you shouldn't have, you know, don't release it into the ocean or the streams. Take it to us. Bring it to the Department of Agriculture. We will take care of it. Our amnesty program has been ongoing yeah, no questions asked. Just bring it in. Because when you do release it into the wild, very, very damaging. You know, it eats our birds, eats our helpful insects. So those are the three things. Uh, buy local, help us with these invasives, you know, join our fight, and then uh, turn in those illegal pets and plants that you have at home. It's It's, it's going to hurt agriculture if you reduce if you release them into into the wild. That was Sharon Hurd, State Agriculture Director, talking with HPR's Mark Ladau. Hurd was reflecting on her first year as a head of the department and her hopes for the upcoming year. Support for HPR comes from HomeWorks Construction, providing comprehensive services to plan and build new homes, accessory dwelling units or ADUs, and renovations designed to accommodate homeowners' lifestyles. HomeWorksHawaii.com I'm Stephen Dubner on the next Freakonomics Radio. Air travel wasn't always very safe, but now... It's safer than riding a bike, safer than driving a car, safer than crossing a street. So why is flying safer than driving? It comes as a result of our willingness collectively to say that we cannot tolerate a fatal aircraft accident. Part two of our series on air travel, that's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Beginning this evening at 7, following Counterspan. And now it's time to lay out the answer to our backyard quiz. We wanted to know the name of a mysterious concrete bridge straddling the Lique Lique Highway that bears no markers or signage. Thick forest grows on both sides of the highway, and the overpass can easily be overlooked. The history of the bridge is linked to a secluded family estate in Upper Kalihi that carries some grim history. In the 1960s, private detectives attempting to film the landowner, uh, uh, apparently one of the investigators, was shot and killed. In 1971, the same landowner assaulted Christmas tree poachers, and according to newspaper accounts, that uh, ended in a bloody scuffle involving knives and ripsaws. Landowner George Burmeister Sr. had other run-ins with the law and reportedly left the islands to travel abroad during the 1990s. Currently, no one resides on the property located at the secluded side of the Lique Lique, which means the private Burmeister overpass leading to the Burmeister estate remains unused. Uh, and our winner today, Mike Durant of Honolulu. 
That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to TalkBack at hawaiipublicradio.org. You know, this Saturday marks the sixth anniversary of the false missile alert. At the time, many believed this incoming missile was coming from North Korea. The country had been in the headlines at the time after firing rockets into waters off its coast. And North Korean leader Kim Jong-un had also been trading nuclear threats with then-President Trump. Uh, Jean Lee is a former uh, Associated Press correspondent who reported from North Korea from 2008 to 2017. She'll be giving a free talk about her experience in the country tomorrow at the East-West Center. The Conversations, Russell Subiano talked to Lee this morning. I will say that it is very dangerous to be in North Korea as an American and as a journalist. And that's because we forget that the United States is still technically at war with North Korea. So we, we call it the Forgotten War, the Korean War, which took place from 1950 to 1953, is something we call the Forgotten War here in the United States, but it is a war the North Koreans have not forgotten. It ended in 1953 with a ceasefire, with a truce, not with a peace treaty. So the North Koreans take advantage of that status and use the war as rationale for building its military and its weapons program. And it can be hard for us to remember that we're still at war with North Korea, that this war continues. But that's exactly what makes it so dangerous for us as Americans, as U.S. citizens, to go to North Korea. That said, there is a way to stay safe in North Korea, and that is to follow all the rules. But I can say that it is extremely difficult because there are so many rules in North Korea. And that was one of the toughest things for me was that we don't grow up. We have so many freedoms here. We don't grow up with that kind of a regimented system where every move you make is dictated and needs permission. So whether it's going for a walk outside your hotel, you need permission, going to the bathroom sometimes. There were definitely times when I was not allowed to go to the bathroom. Uh, It's a a society that is very heavily regimented and I think and also very heavily surveilled. And so as an American, I find those I found those extremely difficult to not only keep myself safe, but also to operate as a journalist where the mission is to try to report and get out there and talk to people. But I spent many, many years reporting from North Korea. I came up with my own ways to connect to the people, to speak to them, to get a sense for the temperature, the mood, what people were thinking, what they wanted. And I think all those years on the ground helped me get to that point where I felt like I really understood this place that I was covering as difficult as it was to report properly from North Korea. When you talk about how they regimented your experience there, when you actually did get to speak to the people, what were they like? Did they seem like just regular everyday people or were they a little bit different? When we see images of North Korea, they're very often orchestrated. And that is propaganda. They're putting out images that they want to project. And, you know, it'll be footage of these parades and everybody looks so robotic. Everybody has the same look on their face. And that can make you think, oh, they're brainwashed, they're robots, they lack emotion. But nothing could be farther from the truth, to be honest, because the North Koreans, in my experience, having spent time with them day in and day out, week after week, they are among the most emotional and opinionated people I've (laughs) ever met. They're very quick to anger and very affectionate. But these are the sides of the North Koreans that we don't get to see because they don't want to share it. They want to project an image of complete unity, complete order. But when you get the North Koreans on a personal basis, they are just as human as anybody else. They are just as funny, affectionate, angry, emotional. The difference, of course, between them and us is that they know not to talk about anything political or anything about the Kim family, the ruling family of North Korea, out loud. And so this is part of that regimented society that I was talking about, that they they understand how to protect themselves. But when you get away from that, 
they are just as human as anyone else. And that is, I think, an important and missing piece of the puzzle for us understanding the North Koreans. Because one of the things I like to do is to make sure that we recognize that beyond all that propaganda, beyond all the images of the the ballistic missiles and the nuclear weapons and Kim Jong-un, there are 25 million people who are just trying to survive and doing the best they can in a system that is very difficult. I think when many of us think about hackers, our minds kind of go to Russia first, probably because of the headlines from recent presidential elections. But hackers from North Korea are also a huge threat. In fact, they're the focus of your podcast, The Lazarus Heist. What do we need to be aware of here in Hawaii when it comes to their hacking ability? How vulnerable are we? Yeah, I do think that we should be aware that cyber actors are not just loners working on their own, trying to make a million here or a hundred thousand here and there. There are state-sponsored hackers, and these are units that have the support and the resources of their government, and that's Russia, China. And I think we always underestimate North Korea because of these contradictions. But North Korea, I would say, their hackers are among the most aggressive because when you think about it, they're working not just for themselves, but also on behalf of their state. And this is, uh, I do think that we need to worry about it because most of that money is going toward helping Kim Jong-un reach his goals, which is to help North Korea become, help him become the leader of a nuclear power, a nation that's considered a nuclear power. And that means that money is most likely going toward helping him build these increasingly bigger ballistic, intercontinental ballistic missiles and nuclear weapons. And I know North Korea seems so far away, but, you know, this week, Mark, is it six years? Yeah, six years. That false alarm that there was a North Korean ballistic missile incoming. I was not here that day, but I people mention it when I mention North Korea. They still remember it, and I'm sure you remember it mm-hmm. so keenly. 38 minutes of complete panic. They have that capability. I, I do hope that it won't reach that point. But they're certainly building up the arsenal and with the help of the money that is gained through cyber theft. And so, and then beyond that, I do think that we need to be realistic about the broader threat of cyber attacks as a form of cyber warfare, as well as cyber theft. And we are particularly vulnerable here in Hawaii because we do have a, you know, there's a strong military presence. And when you think about countries like some of these countries that invest in their cyber hackers, their their cyber warriors, one of their goals is to disrupt our lives, disable our defenses. And so it's something for us to think about and be suspicious of when we have attacks on the grid or outages. And, and I think that every single person needs to be incredibly vigilant is you don't want to be the person who clicks on a link and allows that hacker into the network to completely take it hostage or compromise it. And we touched on the sixth anniversary of, of the false missile alert. It's coming up this Saturday. Many of us were under the impression during that alert that the missile was coming from North Korea. But does North Korea even know who we are? Are they zeroed in on us or... Or are we just, you know, some random island sitting in the middle of the water? Oh, no. I do remember that there was a photo of Kim Jong-un's leader of North Korea with some maps on his desk, and you could see Hawaii. So I think that that's the thing is that for us, and this is something that I want to mention, is that one of the things that happens when you go there to North Korea is that we know so little, but they're very focused on us. And the average person doesn't know much about us. But the leadership and the strategists certainly do, because the relationship with the United States is so central to their foreign policy. Even at times when they feel like they're shutting us out, they are actually working on a strategy around the United States. The United States is their biggest adversary, but also their main focus. And again, it goes back to the Korean War. In Korean War, the ceasefire was signed technically between North Korea and China and the United States and the United Nations. And so it's shocking when you go, for me, when I went to school and all the history lessons were about fighting the Japanese, the Japanese colonized Korea from 1910 to 1945, 
and then fighting the Americans. So there's a narrative. It's very clear when you go to North Korea, the narrative right now is this war with the United States. And that's something that just blew my mind because it's so different. That is pure manufactured history in a sense. And it's so different from the way we see North Korea. So I always say, you know, we know so little about North Korea, but they're very focused on us. So I think that I need to dig up that picture of Kim Jong-un and the map of (laughs) Hawaii. But, you know, they also know history. They know, I think at first, Hawaii is closer, right, geographically. So it was an easier target when their missiles were smaller. Their missiles are now much bigger, intercontinental ballistic missiles. And the latest one that they test launched just a couple weeks ago, they tested it straight up. But if they had tested it at the normal angle, it's definitely have reached Hawaii, but uh, certainly could have reached the mainland. And that's what they want to show us. Now, we here, I don't think that they've had a missile that's reached this far, but of course, several have flown over Hokkaido, Japan. And that has been terrifying. And I just hope that we are not at that point. There's still time to stop that from happening. But that false alarm could certainly happen again if circumstances were slightly different. So fascinating talking to you. Thanks so much for your time today, Jean. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. And that was journalist Eugene Lee talking with HPR's Russell Saviono. Lee will be giving a talk about her experience in North Korea at the East-West Center tomorrow from 11 a.m. to noon. The event is free and open to the public. There are a few spots left to attend in person, but there's also the option to attend virtually. We'll have a link to more information on the conversation page of our website after the show. We are all out of time, so that does it for us today. Tomorrow on The Long View, we tackle multi-generational living. Easier said than done. We welcome feedback. Record something by calling our talkback line, 808-792-8217, or email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also find past episodes of The Conversation on our website or at your favorite podcast store. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.